Hi, I'm Cheryl Broom, CEO of Graduate Communications. The Higher Education Coffee and Conversation podcast is dedicated to exploring issues of importance to staff and faculty who work at community colleges and universities. In this episode, I speak to a community college trustee who's won five elections, serving his college for nearly 20 years. Mark Evelsizer started off as a retiree looking to teach part-time at Palomar College, and that experience led him to join the Board of Trustees and serve his college and community in new, exciting ways. I've always wanted to ask a trustee questions about their job, their role at the college, and how college employees and administrators can best assist them. Mark was kind enough to answer these questions, plus give tips for those of you out there who may one day want to run for trustee yourself. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Well, welcome to the podcast, and I'm thrilled to have you on. I've known you from a distance for many years and seen your tremendous contributions at Palomar College and thought you would be a perfect guest to have on the podcast to share with our listeners what it's like to be a trustee and uh, what brought you to being a trustee and and, uh, maybe ask you some questions that people are scared to ask their college trustees. All right. Hey, that sounds terrific. Uh, Let's go ahead and and open up the session and and begin. Why don't you start by telling me a little bit about yourself, uh, your background, and what brought you to Palomar College? This is a story I share with many of the college students that I cross paths with and some of the high school students that I interact with. I was in my first year of college And Alicia had just graduated from high school and we got married that June of 73. We had a daughter, Kimberly, and uh, nine years later, we were blessed with our son, Timothy. And now we're grandparents to three granddaughters and one grandson. Uh, We're very blessed in that arena and we're, we're still together. And if I can share one thing, I'll just say it's been a, a, a blessing to have a lifelong partner for that long and, and grow from young people into older people <laughs> and making all of those transitions together. I think that's just a wonderful thing. And I really hope that many of your listeners can experience uh, such a lifelong journey as well. So uh, on graduating from high school, I immediately went to Cal State University, Long Beach studied zoology. I wanted to be a uh, marine biologist. I had an abrupt change in careers when I found out that having a child I had to support and a wife, I had to basically stop attending college full-time and and go part-time. And so I would go day classes initially and work evenings. And that working evenings encompassed pumping gas at gas stations I waited tables at Bob's Big Boy as a waiter. I remember counting quarters at our at our kitchen table every night, you know, bringing home all that tip money, and and she'd take it and go buy groceries with it the next day. I worked for TWA part time, and and what I didn't realize was that I was a strike breaker. Uh, apparently, they were on strike, and I was a, a scab, for lack of a better word. And it was a very uh, non illustrious job. It was cleaning the plates that came off of the airplanes that had, you know, old food on them. So you'd have to scrape the moldy food into garbage disposals and wash it. I was a dishwasher. What I wanted to share there was that I was always uh, willing and able to do whatever it took to put, you know, food on the table and pay rent for an apartment. 
And I guess my father-in-law, God bless him, he felt so sorry for me that he uh, he was working at Northrop Aircraft Company, and he saw how I was struggling. So he got me an interview at Northrop Aircraft Division in Hawthorne, California, and I was hired on January fifteenth, nineteen seventy-four, and my starting wage there was three dollars and thirty-three cents an hour. Wow. And that, that was wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> you, were, you were happy with that. <laughs> I was happy with that at the time. We were able to make ends meet. I mean, gasoline yeah. back then was only, you know, 30 cents a gallon. I started in manufacturing on the factory floor. And from there, I was able to transition into a shop load position. Then that led into a system analyst position which lent itself into becoming an industrial engineer. And from there, I was able to work on some of our nation's most exciting programs at the time. My 30 plus years in aerospace afforded me a very nice pension and an opportunity to retire. I retired early at 63. We're, we're retired or supposed to be retired, but I'm not really retired because I'm a trustee. My experience at Palomar began in 1996. I was hired as a part-time faculty member, and I typically taught the evening classes to people wanting to become supervisors or managers. That really accorded me an opportunity to witness firsthand how community colleges played such an essential role in our community and in our society for providing them with skills and tools and knowledge and an educational experience that helped them become better. And, and I, I was connected to that because I benefited from higher education. I finally graduated from college. I finally went to graduate school and got my graduate degree. And I saw what opportunities I was provided because I had a higher education. It's, it's interesting because after I left uh, General Dynamics, I had a period where I thought I'd try higher education as a career option. And maybe you know, a start would be getting hired as a part-time faculty member. But as a part-timer, I realized how I wasn't accorded the opportunity for any benefits. Um, I, I saw how part-timers were considered less than our full-time faculty and really weren't paid at similar hourly rates as they were. And it's almost like they were second tier or um, second status faculty. And at the time, this is the late 90s, Palomar College did not have a faculty union. They, for all these years, the, the college was founded in 1946, they had a meet and confer process and labor unions just, uh, I guess, weren't able to take a, a foothold at Palomar College. But I saw this disparity between full and part-time faculty and I uh, got involved with organizing faculty at Palomar. It was started with the part-time faculty and getting them to sign union cards and petitioning to form a fa faculty union. I became a union organizer and spokesperson for the earliest stages of, of founding a faculty union. And perhaps you were paying penance for 
crossing that picket line 40 years before. You know, that might have been the case. <laughs> but actually, it was a wonderful experience. And, and the full-timers came on board with the part-timers and uh, collectively formed a single union that represented both part-timers and full-timers. And uh, they've had that union since uh, since I was elected to the trustee, uh, the board, the governing board at Palomar College in 2002. So what led you to want to run for election? Was it your involvement in the union? Were you asked to run? What was yes, that initial? Yeah. Exactly. I, I was asked if I would be willing to run. And when I was asked, I really didn't know what that position was about or what responsibilities it encompassed or entailed. And a lot of people didn't think I could win with a name like Evil Sizer. <laughs> and I'm, I'm still amazed that I've been able to be reelected five, uh, elected five times now. What is it like to run for election? Is it, is it difficult, challenging? I mean, most of us think about, or at least I, when I think about elections, you think about presidential elections and mailers yeah. and flyers and phone calls. Is it, is it a difficult part of being a trustee? Well, you know, I think for someone um, who has financial support, and in my case, I had the financial support and the coordinated support of the, the faculty at Palomar. And so that was a great uh, opportunity for me in that it afforded me the luxury of not having to worry about money. Because let's face it, money is the mother's milk of politics. So it does take money to run. I mean, just the filing fee at the time for Palomar College alone was, you know, nearly a couple thousand dollars. And then, of course, it entailed, you know, ads, and campaign signs, and phone banks, and going door to door, attending public events like Fourth of July, you know, public events. Uh, and uh, visiting all the various cities within your district. Palomar College is a 2,500 square mile district, so it encompasses a lot of area and a lot of different cities. So, I mean, I went to Fallbrook, Valley Center, Escondido, you know, uh, San Marcos, Vista, uh, even a, a part of Oceanside is part of our district. Camp Pendleton, where the United States Marine Corps has a huge training facility, it taught me a lot about what it takes to run for public office. It's true in politics. Um, money often wins. And I think that I would envision that would be a difficult part of anybody wanting to step in and become a trustee is, is how to raise money and how to get support and uh, overcoming that obstacle to be able to, you know, contribute to a college. Yeah. And, you know, I'm enlightened uh, or, or quite, uh, surprised by the fact that a, we had three uh, board members elected to our governing board just in November. Mm -hmm. And the, all three of these people are newcomers. Um, only one of them was backed by the Faculty Federation. Uh, the other two, I come to find, hardly spent much of anything beyond their own filing fees. Wow. Um, because I think now the, the, the online 
marketing opportunities available, uh, podcasting, Facebook uh, ads, all of these other uh, mediums are now available that, that you can get done uh, inexpensively. Of course, for a local government position like a school board or a college board, your campaign or your statement that appears in the ballot statements of candidates is so vital and so important because that really gives you an opportunity to tell each voter what your platform is, what you stand for, what you, you know, hope to accomplish. And so uh, if you're going to focus on any one thing, I think that's the most uh, important thing to focus on is that, that ballot statement that goes to every registered voter in your city or in your district, whatever the case might be. Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, even reflecting back on on how we voted, my husband and I sat down with our pamphlet and, yeah. you know, you're voting for judges and, mm-hmm. you know, school board officials who you've never met and never heard of and maybe exactly. you sign, but yeah, you're that what they've written in that in that pamphlet is going to It's critical. Yeah, yep. critical. Well, peeling away a little bit, like taking back the curtain of being a trustee, uh, I always worked for the superintendent president who reported to the trustee. So for for me, the trustees were like, they were my boss's boss. So we always wanted to make sure that we kept them them happy and informed. But from your position, um, sitting up at the dais, what, how do you see your role? What role do you play in the grand scheme of the college's you know, operations? Well, it's taken me 18 years probably to fully recognize the role of a trustee uh, legally and uh, as defined uh, by a number of you know, ed codes and things of this nature. Our role is to provide fiscal oversight fiduciary responsibility, if you will. We are also authorized to hire or terminate the chancellor or president superintendent of a community college district. And we're able as a board, not as individuals, to direct the CEO of the institution toward certain goals and accomplishments. And and we set policy. And so really that is our limited but very important role as a governing board member. Has it been difficult? I mean, you you now are going on 20 years, so maybe it was difficult at first and not anymore, but I know that it's a struggle for some colleges where the trustees really want to be involved in like the day-to-day operations of a college. And I've heard many colleges have struggled with defining those lines of where being an elected official ends and being an employee begins. How have you dealt with that? Is that a a challenge for the new trustees or for you? Any tips to colleges? For new trustees, I think uh, there is a certain naivete about your role. And I remember as a young new trustee, you know, just going onto the campus and I was going to meet with faculty and I was going to do all this stuff. And I did not give the courtesy or professional notice to the president of the college that A, I was coming onto the campus, B, whom I was speaking with, 
and, you know, giving them a heads up, no surprises. That really should be the mantra of a trustee is don't undercut or surprise your one employee. And that's the CEO, your partners in your relationship, your partners in leading the institution. And really the CEO is the only one employee that has a relationship with the board. You cannot direct staff. That is the job of the, the president, the vice presidents, the deans, etc. You know, there's a certain hierarchy or um, uh, authority. So I think, yeah, as a new employee, a uh, new trustee, oh my goodness, uh, I, it took me a while to learn that. And, and now, 18 years later, I appreciate the uh, reason for that, not, not having or, you know, not surprising your CEO, not undermining them in any way, your partners, just keep them apprised, keep them informed. Uh, they're not going to mind that you're on campus and they're not going to mind that you're talking to whomever, but you should give them the professional heads up of, you know, what it's about. And I know when I was at Miracosta, um, you know, worked with lots of trustees over the years all such wonderful people. And there's one trustee who liked to contact our department regularly. So I would always make sure to let the, let the president know, oh, this yeah. trustee's got another request. And, and he would say, okay, let me handle it. <laughs> yeah. Because I think trustees, it takes a while to learn that individually, we don't have authority to do much of anything, maybe listen. And the only true authority comes through the board. By that, I mean through the majority of the board members. If you have a majority vote of the board, you can direct the president to do whatever. But you can't do that as an individual. You have to do that with and through the board. And, and I think it takes a little while for trustees to understand that. Before I ask you the next question, Mark, I hear some a little bit of rustling. I don't know if you have papers on your desk. Well, that's probably me scratching my beard. I'll stop oh. doing that. <laughs> I might keep that comment in the podcast because that is <laughs> <Okay>. really funny. <laughs> yeah, sometimes beards get a little dry and itchy, so I'll stop it. It's probably a nervous tick, right? Well, you would be surprised when we're editing podcasts. Everybody has something. It's either the word um or a tisk or some word that they use over again. And now we know that your nervous tick is scratching your beard. So a lot of our listeners are communications professionals. And I, I know that Palomar, you know, I live, I don't live in your district, but I live right next door in Oceanside. Yes. So I've watched your news over the years and you've had some really difficult issues that you've had to deal with as a college. And yeah. I think that any large institution has difficult issues over the course of their existence. And, and you've served in the capacity of, of president um, before, correct? You've been board president. Yeah, 14 yeah. And what is your role when it comes to, you know, difficult times for the college or, or public relations crises? What role does the board president or the board as a whole play? Typically, the president speaks on behalf of the board. So that is one role that we confer upon a chair or a board president to be that spokesperson. And a wise spokesperson will not speak until they have conferred with 
the CEO, typically the president, superintendent, and a communications person, because you have to, you have to be very wise and knowledgeable about what type of message you're trying to convey and how do you want to best communicate that without raising, you know, misinformation or false alarms or legal, you know, challenges. So it's a real team and we're, and we're very cognizant of and appreciative of our communications director uh, to help the board and the CEO orchestrate public messages that go out to the media, the newspapers, the news media, and let them help us manage the messaging because you're trained to do that. Um, you, you know how to connect with various media and news outlets. Try to control the messaging as much as you can. Don't let them control the message, if you will. Is there anything that would help you do that part of your job better? I mean, is there training you have gone through or you wish you had? Because I think it's a very unfamiliar role for a lot of, of trustees is being is having to speak for a, a large organization. That's not something most people ever have the opportunity to do. Yes. And uh, thank you for asking that question. The Community College League of California is our uh, educational resource for trustees and CEOs. And they do wonderful jobs uh, three times a year of having uh, conferences that have wonderful educational workshops. And, and part of that training includes, you know, knowledge of the Brown Act, how to be a good board chair. And we've had presentations from communications directors up and down the state on the do's and don'ts of being, you know, on the board and being a spokesperson for the institution and increasing your, your understanding and knowledge of, of what all is entailed in that. And that's great to hear. And I think that's so important. I, even as a communications person myself, I went through a training once, um, I think it was with OSHA, our, I don't remember, some government organization, and we went through having to be a spokesperson during a crisis, and they recorded us on camera, and we had to watch ourselves, and it was really painful <laughs> to see. But, you know, even as a professional, that ongoing training is necessary. It's critical. But it, I would think particularly for people like you who have had, you know, significant careers as engineers or as faculty members or wherever the background uh, trustees come from, having that communication training is really important because you you do, you speak for the entire college, you represent the college. And I think that's a, a skill that is definitely worthwhile honing in on. Yeah. And, and I think it's worth noting too, that crises are inevitable and we're all going to experience a natural disaster, whether it's a fire here in Southern California, for example, mm -hmm. or a flood or an earthquake. I mean, there are just a number of natural catastrophes that, that you have to communicate uh, to your communities on. For example, when we had the wildfires raging, uh, our campus was used as a housing overflow, if you will. We opened up our gymnasium for families. Uh, we had to set up kennels for uh, uh, small animals like cats and dogs. 
And I think we had made arrangements with equestrian facilities in our district to help people with livestock and horses. So, um, you know, you, you kind of serve uh, with the Red Cross in disaster relief uh, in, a, in a circumstance such as that. And again, messaging and getting out the proper information to the communities is, is critical. Yes, it definitely is. Um, I gosh, those wildfires. I was at Maricosta when those happened and talk about just turning your college upside down. I mean, they, they were incredible. I think Palomar, you had to cancel commencement that year, reschedule it. Yeah. Yeah. Difficult Mm -hmm. decisions. Any other things that you remember times you remember where you were challenged or things you were proud of? One of the things that was very challenging back in the uh, 2009, 10, 11 timeframe was the economic recession that California and the nation were experiencing. And uh, I remember that as people became unemployed in, in large numbers, a lot of them were coming to the community college to retool, to learn that software, you know, program or pick up new skills that they needed to re-track uh, their, their careers. Uh, and they came to the community colleges for that. The problem was that because of the economic recession, we were not provided the funding by the state to scale up our course offerings. And as a result, we weren't able to meet demand. That was heartbreaking. And I'm fearful that we're going to find ourselves in a similar situation now when we do emerge safely from this pandemic and people are able to come back to a community college that we're not going to have funding to accommodate that need. So we're going to work very closely with our state legislature, with the uh, California uh, Community College Chancellor's Office, and all of the folks up and down the state working together to ensure that we're able to meet that demand. Because as I've learned, California Community Colleges are true economic drivers for their communities. I mean, we train the nurses, the police officers, the firefighters, the EMTs, wastewater management, welders, all of these things. People come to the community colleges for that training. We need to make sure that we have the resources there to accommodate our citizens. Yeah, that's interesting. I know with the pandemic, we had so many colleges initially think that maybe there'd be a surge of people who have lost their jobs would want to come and take online courses. And of course, we've seen the opposite happen that, you know, enrollments down 15, 20% at institutions across the nation. But looking forward, you're right. I mean, we might see a surge come back once people are able to get back in the classroom and their lives have, have kind of taken on some normalcy after what we've all gone through. Yeah, you know, one thing I've seen is that not everybody is enamored uh, with online instruction. I, for one, took an online course at your your old college, uh, Miracosta Community College, in Excel. Mm. I wanted to learn, you know, more Excel skills, and uh, it was an online class, and I just didn't thrive in that environment, personally. Um, I, I just feel I needed to be in a classroom, being able to raise a hand and, 
and having, you know, an instructor come over and talk to me and show me something. And that wasn't easily done online. However, I see younger students, I'm looking at my grandson, uh, we get him one day a week and he's doing online instruction. And they seem to adapt much more readily and easily to online. So I don't think they're as impacted as our older students are, especially my age older students. <laughs> but um, I think that definitely is playing a role in the diminished uh, attendance at our colleges right now. And uh, I really feel that once we're able to get people back on campus, that that'll, that'll increase enrollments. Yeah, I tried online learning too. I had taken the graphic design software that we use in marketing that a lot of people use is Adobe Creative Suite. And I took, there's three portions of that software. And I took one on campus and two online. And the two online courses I took, I cannot remember how to use that, the software I learned in those classes. Yeah. But the yeah. one I took online or on person, I can still use it. I'm proficient. So I do, I, I, you're exactly right. Some yeah. people thrive and that's yeah. a challenge for others. My 12 year old is thriving in online learning, but that's because he can run around the house with his headphones on. <laughs> <laughs> he doesn't have to sit. <laughs> Quick adapt adaptation. Yes, exactly. So for some people, maybe it's that they're not, they're not confined to a chair. He's like dug up our lawn, hitting golf balls all day. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. So he's kind of woods in the making. Huh? Wouldn't that be nice? <laughs> <laughs> well, as we kind of wrap up our conversation, you know, what are your big takeaways from being a trustee? I think, you know, we watch you from the outside, not fully understanding the calling to serve in that capacity or the responsibility that you have. So if you could educate people about what you do and why, you know, what would you, what would you say? Well, I think I've come to appreciate uh, the role of trustee and, and, and how we are in certain terms, role models. Um, and we should be setting examples that are good examples for conduct, and civil discourse and analytical thinking in a civilized way. When I've seen trustees lose their cool or attack a colleague or, or verbally abuse a, you know, a, a speaker or a, or, a, or a faculty or staff member, it really reflect, reflects badly, not only on the individual, but on the entire governing board. We have to realize that we help set the tone of leadership at our institutions, and we really need to show a strong alliance and partnership with our CEOs, because together we're the team that helps that lead you know, the direction of the district, and we have to be uh, respectful and uh, ethical and mindful of all of our actions and, and even the words that we use. So I think that's something that's become uh, increasingly important to me uh, to be aware of. Yes, and we've seen quite a different political environment the last four years. The yes, on a, national, mm -hmm. on a national stage, we can see how important the choice of words and actions are and, and how it can either motivate or dispirit uh, people. 
It's such great advice. When I had first come to my, my college now, it's been 17 years ago, I was a, a classified staff member and my role was, I was basically a writer for the college. That was my first role. Ooh. And I went to a board meeting because the director of communications, uh, I was kind of her her right-hand person. And when she would be on vacation or out, I would have to attend the board meeting and sit next to um, the reporters. And back then reporters actually came to the board meetings. There was a table for a reporter and I sat, would sit next to them. And our first meeting, she said, um, these meetings are so wonderful. We call them love fests. And then the next meeting, like, everything fell apart and there was a giant scandal and it was no longer a love fest. And for years, <laughs> the board meetings were scary <laughs> and it did change the tone. The tone of the board changed the tone of the campus and it took a couple years to recover. Yes. And of course the media loves a story that, oh, yeah. that has scandal attached to it or, or even as an innuendo and they're all over it. So yeah, I can remember uh, a couple of incidents that occurred uh, at Miracosta and, and at Palomar that, uh, you know, there's just no way you're going to keep the news media away from <laughs> uh, oh, yeah. trying to find out as much as they can about it. Right. Oh yes. And then, so my, my, former boss quit in the middle of it or retired. He retired early, but she was like not having it. So I inherited her position and I worked very closely with the board on messaging and it took, it took a lot of years, but that, I mean, we see it nationally and we see it locally. The the tone that the board sets that our elected officials set permeates throughout the institution. So I think that's a really um, key point that you make. Well, and, 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 you know, in our democracy, journalism is such an important uh, safeguard mm-hmm. and has such an important role to play in our, in our uh, society. And, of course, freedom of the press and freedom of speech, uh, you know, those are, those are well-earned and hard-fought-for rights, and we have to preserve those. Putting a hat on like a communications director hat is akin to putting on a firefighter hat sometimes. You knowingly have to enter a burning building or a really hot story, but you wanna do it as a trained professional who knows how to safely navigate uh, those, those troubled uh, uh, environments and come out at the end successfully, either putting out a fire or at least getting the facts known for you know, incidents that occur because they're gonna happen. And we're going to have things pop up that, that seem like turmoil, but if you manage them properly, in the end, things usually turn out okay. Very, very true. So you have been a trustee now 18 years. So do you have yes. two more years until you're up for re-election? Yeah. And uh, I'm going to announce here, this is, this is going to be my last term. I, I think 20 years is a great uh, longevity cycle for an elected official. Um, I, I love being a trustee. I love helping students. I enjoy so immensely seeing them succeed and graduate and transfer and, and become the nurse or the police officer or the EMT that they want to become. That, that's the true mission of our community colleges. And that should be the, the true mission of all employees at community colleges is help our students succeed in their educational paths. 
Definitely. Well, congratulations. I mean, 50 years of marriage, 20 years as a trustee, you're definitely someone who, when you commit to something, you're in it for the long run. Yeah. All while being safely secured in our, in our home here and not being able to travel during COVID, but we're making the best of it. Well, I really appreciate you taking the time. I I think our listeners will have learned a lot about kind of how, what your role is and what your responsibilities are and, and what trustees need. And I, I think it's a wonderful peek into the world of, of the community college trustee. So I thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. Sure. And maybe, you know, in the future, we can pick another topic and and dive a little bit more deeply into a subject matter that your uh, listeners might find uh, interesting. Of course. Well, then I have two years to track you down before you leave. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) So I will be in touch. You can count on that. Okay, Cheryl. All right, Mark. Well, thanks again. And thank you for the opportunity to, to share my experiences. Thank you for listening to Higher Education Coffee and Conversation. If you like the podcast, please leave me a five-star rating. And to discover more great higher education-related content, make sure to visit us at graduatecommunications.com. And with that, I'm going to say thank you for listening. Thank you for the hard work you do for students each and every day.